Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game odds on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. It's exciting to win money. Back out to Allen. History final. Is there anything you don't gamble on? Uh, not really. Gambling gods, fickle bunch. Oh yeah, so easily offended. Gambling's not your problem. You're just an idiot. And we welcome you into Full Slate, a Blue Wire gambling podcast. My name is Greg Frank. You can follow me on gambling Twitter at Undercover Greg. On my regular Twitter at D underscore Frank six for the rest of my sports takes and certainly be sure to follow the podcast at full underscore slate underscore pod as our jack of all trades Alex Uplinger does a great job managing that account and it is late February so we want to transition from the professional gridiron to the college hardwood as college basketball will hit its postseason before we know it and of course March is the month of college basketball so we figured we might as well get to the college hardwood just before we get to the postseason in college hoops. And we bring on from the Action Network, Tanner McGrath, a kind enough guest to join us on this week's podcast. As we record on a Friday evening, you listen either later on Friday night or hopefully on Saturday before tip of all these games because we are going to get to plenty of games to run through uh, for some picks for Saturday, February the 25th. Tanner, good to have you aboard, my man. How you doing? Greg, thank you so much for having me on. I got to say, I followed uh, Full Slate on Twitter and listened to your podcast for a long time now, so it feels like it's been a long time coming. <laughs> well, uh, that's good to know. Always glad to interact with listeners, and uh, now you're a guest, so it's certainly good to have you aboard. And as we do with plenty of new voices on the podcast, we like to try and intro you guys a little bit and uh, get a little feel for how you got into the sports betting space. We were talking a little bit before you jumped on. I know you're a Vermont native, went to the University of Vermont, uh, or excuse me, uh, went to college in Montreal, uh, and it moved around a little bit, but uh, very familiar with the America East Conference from a college basketball standpoint, you were saying, uh, but it's your story to tell, not mine. So why don't you fill in the gaps from there? Yeah, it's funny. A lot of people do think that I went to uh, the University of Vermont because I'm such a diehard fan. But um, no, the truth is I grew up in Vermont. I have followed the Catamounts for a long time, but I went to school at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. Um, That's where I got into the sports gambling state. Um, I started writing there. I am a journalism school dropout um, from the University of British Columbia, where I covered the football team there. Right after I dropped out, I took a job at a small um, Victoria, British Columbia-based um, site called Capper's Picks, where I was covering college basketball there. Mm-hmm. I parlayed that job into the next job, into the next job, until I got um, my shot at the Action Network. And I've been covering college basketball now for five years. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, because of my uh, Catamount fandom, I'm a huge America East guy. I also am a Big Ten basketball junkie. Mm-hmm. 
um, you will find a lot of my America East and Big Ten content on the Action Network. And yeah, that's me. Well, before we get into more of the college hoops, I do need to go to the ice quickly. I know you're a uh, spent a lot of time in Canada, live there now. College in Montreal. So does that make you a Habs fan, or you're out in British Columbia for, or excuse me, you're out in British Columbia as well? So you know maybe the uh, Canucks. Like, where's your NHL allegiances lie? I'm a Bruins fan. Bruins? I, oh, I guess okay. Yeah. If you grew up in Vermont, that would make sense. I spent five. I, I loved my five years in Montreal, but from a hockey fan standpoint, it was hell. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, I uh, interesting. I, you know, during my time here, I, I live in Halifax, Nova Scotia now. But during my time in Canada, I've become a really big um, Canadian football fan. The CFL. Okay. I'm a huge BC Lions fan. They have uh, the former Ohio quarterback talking to them now, uh, Nathan Rourke. So, okay. Uh, what have you noticed there in terms of the uh, availability of sports wagering in Canada, and and specifically with uh, whether it be offshore or in Canada, the markets for Canadian football league wagering? Um, from a general standpoint, um, Ontario is is great. Ontario. Pretty much has full access now from uh, FanDuel, DraftKings, um, you know the the bigger um, legal books. Um, the rest of Canada is is a bit sketchy. Um, Bet365 is good for most provinces. Um, other than that, you're kind of stuck on offshore or local books. Um, the Canadian football um, market uh, is it's probably my favorite thing to bet just because it's so inefficient. <laughs> um, right. I don't want to say, yeah, I don't want to say it's generally like a developed market, but it's, um, if you know the sport pretty well, there's a pretty easy edge to find. Let's say that. Okay, sure. Um, and how about on a personal level for you, you mentioned some of those jobs you worked, but before you even kind of got to those jobs, what was it about the sports wagering space that attracted you? When I was a... Us, in Canada, they don't use uh, the freshman sophomore. But when I was a second year in college, I placed a five-team um, underdog baseball parlay on five MLB on five MLB underdogs for I think it was ten dollars to pay out like a ridiculous five hundred. And as soon as I got that one hit, I was hooked. For now, hang on, was this the first sports bet you ever placed? It was like one of the first five. You know, like, like I, like I, I dabbled and then I placed this one big bet and then it hit. And then all of a sudden I was full blown. Um, I, I never really expected to be, um, a content producer in this space. I've always been a writer. I've been a writer first. That's why I went to journalism school, but I, with the ever, you know, this is such an ever growing space, right? I mean, the, since PASPA got overturned, it's just blown up. And so I happened to just find my niche in this spot with my writing skills and my passion for uh, sports betting. And now I work for, you know, the action network, one of the best companies in this, um, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Real quick, before we get to some more college basketball strategizing, and then we will end with our Saturday plays. I just want to ask you a little bit about what you've noticed in terms of some of the, like, you mentioned market inefficiencies with Canadian football. When it comes to, uh, you know, betting off information, let's say, like I, I don't know how else to describe what I'm about to lay out, but things like 
Super Bowl prop bets that you have to have inside information on uh, things like the NFL draft. Like this week, a big story was the odds move on Anthony Richardson to be the number one pick in the NFL draft, like where it's you just have to know something in order to bet that. I'm just curious your thoughts on you like you obviously have to know something in order to bet uh, what color the Gatorade is going to be at the Super Bowl, like offerings like that at, at sports books. Like what what have you noticed in terms of, you know, is there have there been expansions in terms of how many kinds of props like that are offered or, you know, how those lines move? It could be complete BS sometimes. And it's just adjusting based on inside information. I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on that. Very little thoughts, to be honest with you. Um, I will say that, yes, there are more and more exotic prop bets, and there are going to continue to be more and yeah. more exotic prop bet markets because, as mentioned, this is a this space is growing infinitely right now. So you're going to get more of these. When it comes to betting, as you said, betting on things that where you have to have inside information, I wouldn't exactly say that. I would more say that if you're going to look at a market um, – Try just try and get the best number you can. I mean, if you're if you're looking at the the Super Bowl um, Gatorade bath market, you know, just try if you like orange, try and get orange at plus 500 before it moves to plus 250 or right. something, you know, along those lines. I don't really think there's a there's not really a real edge to be found in these exotic um, insider information markets. You just take you know take a shot and try and get the best number you can. Sure. All right, well, let's try and uh, discuss how we narrow down a board on a college basketball Saturday as we have plenty to pick through here. Um, and actually, before we get into kind of handicap strategizing and, and narrowing down the board, let's just talk about some of the things we've seen this season on the college hardware. And I think the first thing that you have to talk about if it comes to observations from the 2022-2023 season has just been how topsy-turvy Things have been at the top. We're seeing Houston for the third time this year at number one in the poll. We saw Alabama very recently get to number one and then lose in Knoxville against Tennessee, a game in which the Vols were a favorite in. And we've seen, you know, we're going to get to Purdue and Indiana. Purdue has been number one and lost. It just seems like there's so much uncertainty at the top of the sport this year. Go all the way back to the beginning of the season where you have your traditional blue bloods, North Carolina and Kentucky at the top of preseason polls. And it certainly looks like Kentucky's going to be okay and still make the tournament. North Carolina very much sweating it out. That's the big takeaway for me this season has just been how hard it can be to trust the teams at the top of the pole. And I think moving forward, you're really just going to have to try and ride a hot hand or two because it's very difficult to look at the number next to a team and really take any real observations about what that means for them moving forward. What have you noticed so far this season? You know, I, I've been thinking about this a, a lot lately. Um, it, with how topsy-turvy it can be at the top of the pole, it, sometimes it feels like it's it's that way every year, right? Like, do you remember that one Saturday last season where number one, two, three, four, oh, five? Yeah all lost yeah the thing is the thing that's different is, is it actually is this year i saw um a tweet uh it's a guy will warren at stats by will it has been unusually hard for top 15 teams to win on the road this is this year is the second worst road win rate for top 15 teams over the last 12 years these top seats are going down more often than they have in, in over the past decade um 
two things I want to, I would say about that. I mean, first, personally, I love it. Um, the more underdogs that win, the better it is for my bankroll. Usually I'm an underdog heavy better. Yeah. What it could mean going forward for the tournament. I mean, I really hope we get a really great tournament this year after a bit of a dud last year, because the field is wide open. I mean, it could be really easy to target a middle seat, like a, like a seven and eight, mm-hmm. take a run. The only problem is I just, I have no idea which one, uh, maybe Illinois, uh, you know, in like the seven spot, I still believe in that big three. Um, maybe you target someone like a, like a San Diego state. Uh, I have no idea where to go from there. Well, I'll throw one at you that I'm intrigued by. If only because I think the pressure might be not non-existent, but lower than usual for this team. And that's Gonzaga in the WCC. I realize that, the Zags might not have their most talented roster this year. They don't have that, you know, one and done high level NBA prospect that they've had the last few years. Uh, but Drew Timmy's still there. And I just think in general, a little less pressure, you know, kind of hovering around the 10 to 20 range in the top 25 most of the year has kind of been where they've been at. So it's still talented, but you're not going to have the same questions about oh, well, they haven't played anybody. Who are they? Are they ready for the tournament? Things like that that you always get with Gonzaga when they're on that one line. I think maybe they relax a little bit more here. I'm very curious to see how the game goes on Saturday night against St. Mary's as they look to extract a little bit of revenge. But I definitely think that uh, the Zags are kind of in that range. I mean, you mentioned Illinois. They're a little further down the odds board in terms of the future futures market. But uh, it's just an angle I'm intrigued by with the Zags. So I'll be looking at where they're at seed-wise and, and what their draw is like for sure. Are you going to be taking them on Saturday? They've gotten steamed from yeah, – um, like, So that's the thing. What, what are they, like a five-point favorite now? Yeah, they were – yeah, they opened like three and a half and now they're five. Yeah, see, your point about numbers, like, I don't know. I think it's been a really good year for St. Mary's too. I mean, what, Mahaney's probably the – definitely the freshman of the year in the conference and maybe the outright player of the year. So – uh, I I don't know that I'll be on them on Saturday night, but I just think the uh, a little less pressure for Gonzaga. That might people would argue, like I said, that means that there's less talent. But overall, I'm intrigued by them. I'm I'm just uh, I can't get behind that defense. That interior defense is a yeah. mess, and they have no real like high level defensive guards. I mean, maybe Rasir Bolton on a good day. Um, and look, uh, St. Mary's is, has been clearly the class of the conference. I don't think it's right. even close with how much better St. Mary's is. I mean, they, when they're at their peak, they look un- unbelievable this season. Um, so I, I don't mind your take, especially with um, Gonzaga could be a bit of a high-variance team because of how fast they play and how good their offense is. But, God, that defense is a mess. Yeah, yeah, and again, you're right. Like, they don't have – I mean, and that's the thing. Like, last year you kind of had Chet as the last line of defense to, uh, you know, with that wingspan to block shots and, and to your point about the interior. They don't have somebody like that this year. So, uh, anyway, let's move forward, though, and discuss a little bit about kind of how you strategize on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, I think certainly in the fall with college football, it, it, it's similar in terms of the offerings and the games and, and how much there is out there for betters to select from. So – uh, you know, I'm going to get into some of the angles that I like that are just kind of system things for me that when I see it, I like to hit it. Uh, what are some of the just generic angles, things that you look at where 
you know, you like to narrow down a board if you see X, Y, or Z on a Saturday on the college hoop, in college hoops. You know, I said this, um, I said this exact line a little bit ago, but this is another thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is uh, how do you handicap a game? So this is in order to narrow down a 150 game slate. This is where I start. I always start on the Ken Palm fan match board. You start there, organized by time, and you just go through the board. And then there are three main things, three main factors that I look at when handicapping in no particular order. First, the situational spot. Mm. What's their schedule like? Are they off consecutive losses? Is it a good bounce back spot? Is it a letdown? Are they on a back-to-back? Things like that. Second, I look at the on-court matchups, um, you know, schematically mostly alongside history between the two teams i this is a bit of an aside i would look i will look at trends a bit but i tend to look put less stock in trends i'll target coaches in certain spots like a lot of people if you follow me on twitter they know me as the the shaka smart road dog guy i bet shaka smart is a road dog every single time (laughs) but um i put more stock in schematic um matchups between two teams finally i also like to look at projections um if you build your own model, that's great for you. I personally don't. There are several sites that I trust that I try to put together sort of a consensus number. I use the Shot Quality Bets model, um, the Evan Maya model. I use Greg Peterson um, from Vizen, his lines. Yep. I'll also look at Ken Palm and Bart Torvik. And basically, I try to put all of these factors together. The Like, like I told you earlier, I spent three hours today going through the board, looking at these three different factors. And then once the lines drop, I try to find the place where all three factors come together within a number that I'm looking for. And that's I narrow it down. It takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely understand there's a lot of games to narrow down and whatever your process might be, you're not going to get from 150 to 10, you know, in, in 10 minutes. So um, with that said, I'm also curious because you mentioned you're a big America East guy and, and you follow that conference and you know, obviously more of a low major league there. And, and you do have a few low, ma- low major plays on your card that uh, we're going to discuss. But I, I wonder a little bit, you mentioned how Canadian football can have a lot of market inefficiencies. Do you find that if you do kind of do enough of your homework that the low major leagues in college basketball are a little harder for the odds makers to price? I last year in the America East, I hit 80% of my plays against the spread this year. I believe I'm uh, like 24 and 11 betting on or against America East plays. If you do your research on low major conferences, you can absolutely find a bigger edge than a a bigger play. You know, the number one team versus the number two team is always going to be a more efficient market than, you know, I don't know, um, Chicago state versus IUPUI. (laughs) I, uh, I, I would encourage you to do research on these low major markets. I probably wouldn't try and be too, um, um, sorry, I'm thinking of the word, uh, aggressive with it. Don't try and learn all 32 conferences in a day. Yeah. You know, start somewhere, build your knowledge off of, you know, like for me, I started because I'm a big Vermont fan. By watching Vermont, I learned about New Hampshire. I learned about Maine. From there, I learned about the Northeastern Conference. You know, I learned about Merrimack. I learned about you right, right. from there, right? And you can kind of build your low major knowledge. And if you do, 
uh, yeah, you're going to find less line movement and bigger edges. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point in terms of trying to go off what you know and take a few branches off the tree, you know, in a similar fashion. I went to Temple. Uh, Temple used to be in the Atlantic 10. Now Temple's in the American uh, and so the American geographically is, is spread out quite a bit. So, uh, you get a lot of those, you know, non-conference games in the American will, will touch on several other conferences in, in terms of non-league games. And, you know, for example, with Temple, like they play the big five games. So like they're playing Villanova who's in the big East. They're playing St. Joe's who's in the Atlantic 10, LaSalle's in the Atlantic 10, Penn's in the Ivy league. So Things like that as well, looking at non-conference schedule. And uh, another thing that I'm sure you probably look at a lot, though, is um, and, and this is something that I'll always touch on, is the you know a lot of those Ken Palm metrics, offensive efficiency, defensive efficiency, uh, non-conference strength of schedule, tempo, things like that. Uh, tempo is more of like a totals thing. But I, I just think that basic Ken Palm page where it uh, ranks all the teams and then has all those different little advanced metrics for each team and where they rank, like – just on like that kenpom.com page like you'll get a lot of stuff yeah you like like i said with you know um with how i narrow down a big board i i start at it's the same thing with learning about new teams and learning how to handicap new college basketball conferences and new markets you start at kenpom and then you expand out you expand into you know evan maya bart torvik shock quality and you just you keep digging until you understand one metric and then you understand another metric. And then finally you understand how the full team plays, how the full conference plays. And that's how you become a more knowledgeable, better. And that's how you find bigger edges. Last thing before we get to the Saturday plays that I want to ask you about. We obviously see books come selection Sunday. They will hang futures odds on teams to win regions. And obviously the national championship market is out there as well. But one of the things that I often find to be true is if there is a team that you mentioned your big underdog better if you are say to like a a seven seed to get all the way to the final four like you're going to be more beneficial betting them on four straight money line rollovers than to just bet them to win the region or things like that because you're going to get big prices on those teams uh, that are you know dogs on the money line time and time again so are there little intricacies like that when it comes to you know money line rollovers and trying to not fall victim to some of the futures market pricing that you know gets laid out there when you have a higher handle come march if you like a team just do the math that's the that's the like always it, it it's as simple as saying you know um if you like a prop at line shop, right? Like if you like a team in the futures market, do the math, shop for the best price, compare that best price to if you were to roll over them on the money line and then just just take that one. And what's nice about rolling teams over on the money line is that you often don't get your money tied up in the other market. You can kind of target sure. more teams. You know, it's almost like you can, you can find different angles to take and you can more aggressively attack those angles. But uh, yeah, in the end, it's just a numbers game. That's all gambling is. It's a numbers game. Right. Do the- 
All right, let's jump into our Saturday plays now, and uh, I want to get started uh, with you know something that I'm going to do a lot of here on with my Saturday plays. Is we you mentioned it? There's been a lot of unranked teams beating ranked teams, and there's been a lot of turnover in the sport, and uh, a trend that has been very profitable this year has been the unranked favorite against the ranked opponent. And that's kind of where I wanted to start with bubble team Oklahoma State. I'm going to back the Pokes laying one in the hook against Kansas State. I do think Jerome Tang may well be the national coach of the year when this is all said and done. But you talked about how it's hard to win on the road, too, regardless of where you're at in the poll. And, and, and you know, you have Kansas State here having played back-to-back home games. Last time Kansas State went on the road, actually the last two times Kansas State went on the road in February, lost by eight at Texas Tech, lost by 14 at Oklahoma. Uh, so I think I'm getting Oklahoma State a little bit cheap here, uh, given the spot for Oklahoma State. It's a massive game for the Pokes uh, to try and add to their NCAA resume. They get Baylor as well coming up. So I like Oklahoma State minus the short number at home. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that game. Oklahoma State was one of the first games that I circled here. I love the Pokes. They need a win after three straight losses. It's a perfect letdown spot for Kansas State after back-to-back home wins over Iowa State and Baylor. And you know what the big difference is in this matchup? Other than it's not in the octagon, Musa Cisse is healthy. K-State's interior defense is trash. And while Cisse isn't really a go-to guy, you know, he's shown the ability to score in bunches before. He had 18 in a game against Oklahoma earlier this season. This is a good matchup for him. On the flip side, Kansas State's offense is really simple to figure out. They run isolation over and over with Keontae Johnson and Marquise Noel while Mm. everyone else cuts off the ball. Per shot quality, Oklahoma State is third in the Big 12 in isolation points per possession allowed and second in cutting points per possession allowed. Great matchup, great spot. Love Oklahoma State. All right, let's go to your first play, and you're going to take us to the Big East where uh, I think a lot of people – are going to look at Villanova and think that this was a down year if you're just getting into the sport. But remember, it is uh, Jay Wright's, you know, the first year absent one Jay Wright. And uh, it does feel like the Wildcats, I mean, they've proven they can play with the top teams in the Big East. They went to Marquette and, you know, gave the Golden Eagles all they could handle. Um, and, and they just won at Xavier. Now they come back home against Creighton. And, you know, I think Villanova could be a team to keep an eye on as a bid stealer, perhaps in the Big East. You like the Cats here as a home dog. Why? First of all, I love the Big East this year. I think that UConn is great. I think that Creighton is great. I think that um, Marquette, Marquette's offense touches paint to perimeter better than any offense I've ever seen in college basketball ever. In terms of Villanova. I'm not going to say that Villanova is is fixed per se, but to mount that second half comeback at Xavier was impressive to watch. I think it's a sign that Kyle Neptune is finally sort of figuring out his role in his team. Of course, the biggest part about that is just that the Wildcats are finally healthy, right? I mean, Justin Moore owned Xavier over. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think he shot six for six on the interior, went five for seven from deep, 25 points. Creighton will be a different test. And to be honest with you, it's it's not even really the best situational spot or even on-court matchup. 
I still, I think, I just think Villanova is still undervalued in the markets, especially with now that they're healthy and now that the coach has figured it out and now that they're sort of turning it on. And for example, you know, I talked about projections, both Evan Maya and shot quality make this spread a pure pick em. And I just think Nova is undervalued and I'm, I easily will catch points with this home underdog. So yeah, yeah Nova plus four hosting Creighton. It's on Bad Rivers. All right, let's move forward. And I want to stay in the Big 12. Just talked about Oklahoma State, uh, a team that I think might be peaking late, but better late than never. And that's going to be the Texas Tech Red Raiders as uh, they welcome in TCU. And Texas Tech is a short two-point favorite. Uh, And I'm going to – maybe it's falling victim to a little recency bias, but I'll take the Red Raiders here. Laying the short number, I think that uh, TCU certainly, uh, you know, of late, leaking a bit of oil. It's been a bad month of February for the Horned Frogs. We just talked about Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State beat TCU at the beginning of the month. TCU got clobbered in Manhattan at the Octagon by Kansas State. Lost some tight ones recently to Kansas earlier in the month against Baylor. Lost by double digits in Ames against Iowa State. It just feels like... Jamie Dixon's team might have peaked early, and Texas Tech, I, I don't know if they're necessarily peaking late or maybe if it's just a little bit of positive regression for the Red Raiders because they were a preseason top 25 team, and you know they're still gonna they're gonna end up finishing below 500 in Big 12 play, uh, but they've started to string a few wins together. We mentioned Kansas State quite a bit here. Uh, that was a win in the month of February at home for. The Red Raiders, they beat Texas by seven at home, went to West Virginia, which is always a little bit of a tricky place to play, and won as well, winning by double digits in Norman their last time out. Again, perhaps a little bit of a recency bias play for me, uh, but I like the way Tech is trending, don't like the way TCU's trending. Basically getting Tech at a pick to lay the deuce, I'll go ahead and do it and back the Red Raiders. Guns up. Yeah, um, guns up. I... I am a little worried about um, the buy low, sell high aspect, you know, like TCU off a loss against Kansas. Um, Texas Tech keeps winning. Uh, The big thing about um, stopping TCU is stopping them in transition. And Texas Tech has shown they can be an elite transition defense. And they've also shown that they, you know, they've been mercurial all year. You know, I think that if Texas Tech stops TCU in transition as a home um, as the home team, they're going to win this game easily. But that's uh, I'll probably stay away from this one. But I do endorse you betting it. Okay, let's move forward. And you have a play in the Big 12 as well. As uh, one of the games of the day is a battle of a pair of Texas teams. It's funny, I, I mentioned Texas Tech. I came into the year preaching an all-Texas Final Four with Texas, Baylor, Houston, and uh, Tech was my fourth team coming into the year. Although uh, it does look like Texas A&M is trending in the right direction. But regardless, two of those three, two of those four with uh, Texas and Baylor are squaring off in Waco. Uh, Baylor, a short road favorite, and you're on Scott Drew's team uh, at home. How come? A home Big 12 team off back-to-back conference losses. Easy money. (laughs) I mean, Texas Texas is also due for a letdown after that overtime win over Oklahoma and then blowing out Iowa State. Both games came at home, and now they travel to Waco. Texas won the first meeting between these two, but shot quality actually graded that win as an 
that graded that game as an analytical win for the Bears, so based on the quality of shots taken and allowed. And now Jonathan Chamwachachawa is back on the interior. And look, even with JTT back in the fold, Baylor has its defensive issues. I'm really unsure how much difference um, JTT makes in that regard. But when Baylor's offense is clicking, it's the best in the nation. A supernova of three guard on and all on and off ball screens combined with elite pull up shooting. Texas, meanwhile, is an overrated ball screen defense, um, overrated off the dribble defense. And it's worth mentioning that shot quality grades Baylor's mid-range defense as the best in the Big 12. And that's where Texas lives. I'm not really sure if I believe that analysis just because it doesn't really line up with the eye test. You know, I mean, Baylor runs these small lineups, mm-hmm. but I already like Baylor considering the situational spot. I do think their offense can overpower Texas. And this is another stat that just likes me, makes me like the bears even more minus three at home. Yeah, I, I'm definitely not going to push back on this. Uh, I also think that uh, I'm curious what you think about the the Texas job moving forward. I mean, I think that, Certainly late in games, I'd rather have Scott Drew than Rodney Terry, and, and we see a line this short uh, you know, would indicate that we're going to have a close game. Do you think Texas is going to open it up to a national search, or is Terry going to be retained? I think that Rodney Terry has done a great job. Mm-hmm. I think Texas will still open it up to a national <laughs> search, no matter what, unfortunately. I also would abs- – this is kind of a joke, but I would absolutely love if Cal went there after getting booted from Kentucky. Yeah. Would be the, that, that's that's that if if you're a fan of of good bits, that's the best possible outcome. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll certainly be well, you know, some interesting jobs here if Texas does go national search. Uh, with Notre Dame obviously going to be open with Mike Bray's retirement, maybe Georgetown will finally pull the plug on Patrick Ewing. So St. John's could open. So uh, it, it could be an interesting coaching carousel across the country. Uh, let's move forward, and I want to go to the Big Ten for a play on the Iowa Hawkeyes land four against the Michigan State Spartans. You mentioned situational spots, uh, and I feel like this is – before I get to some of the pro-Iowa stuff that I have here, I feel like this is a big-time letdown spot for Michigan State uh, when you look at uh, the Spartans. I, I don't know that there was a team in the country that was going to win in East Lansing on Tuesday night. Uh, given the high emotions that went into their first game at home after the shooting. Um, and, you know, they end up starting a little slow in that game against IU, but then for probably the better part of the last 30 minutes of the game, really outplayed them. Uh, big game from Tyson Walker on Tuesday night. But now you think about it, they're going to Iowa, uh, 11 a.m. local time start there in Iowa. It just feels like, let down Michigan State, maybe a little sleepy here, uh, given the fact that you look at the Spartans and kind of where they're at on the calendar. You know, they're not going to win the Big Ten regular season. Uh, they're not a bubble team. It, it feels like the type of spot where maybe, as I said, they're, they're a little bit flat. And then conversely for Iowa, I mean, it, it kind of feels like a, a get right opportunity for the Hawkeyes. They have been uh, kind of not kind of like very sloppy. And, you know, and I realize they're not always aesthetically pleasing offensively anyway, but uh, the Hawkeyes lose by 12 at the Cole Center on Wednesday night against Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, Chris Murray, their best player, averages 20 on the year. He scored 19 combined points in their last two games against uh, I mentioned the game against Wisconsin. And then prior to that, uh, they lose by 20 at Northwestern. So I, I like Iowa coming back home here again. 
laying a short number, I'll give up the four and back the Hawkeyes. Yeah, not only is it maybe the most obvious letdown spot for Michigan State off that emotional win, it's a really good bounce-back positive regression spot for Iowa. Not That Wisconsin loss was graded as an analytical win by shot quality, but also both okay. of Iowa's last two losses came on the road, and now they come back to Carter, where they are, by the way, 12-3 and three against the spread this season. I don't know how Iowa gets stops, really, but I also – who on the Spartans is going to guard Chris Murray? Uh, right. Aikens is too small. Hauser is not laddering quick enough. They'll probably just have to stick Malik Hall on there and hope for the best. You know, he only dropped 11 points in the last matchup against Sparty. That, that was, I believe, a month ago. But he also shot 0 for 5 from 3, which is interesting. The whole team, the whole Iowa team in that matchup, shot just 3 for 17 at the Breslin Center – while the Spartans shot eight for 20 from three, and Iowa only lost by two. Iowa's won the last two matchups against Sparty at Carter, both times by two possessions. I agree. I think Iowa does it again here. All right, you're going to hit on a few low major plays here as uh, we'll m- sprinkle in some some of these as well as, uh, of course, all tickets cash the same. And uh, Binghamton is a team you're looking at as uh gosh I don't even know what are the what what's their nickname Binghamton what are Bearcats. they Binghamton Bearcats. Bearcats okay uh so uh Binghamton is I'm trying to find them in my rotation here uh as I get situated they're laying a short number uh tell me why you like the Bearcats yeah so I, I'm not sure if this number is really opened up across the market so uh based on what I've seen projections it'll projections it'll probably be Binghamton minus two and a half to be honest with you, I like it up to minus four and a half. All right. I love talking America East basketball, so thank you for indulging me here. <laughs> Binghamton comes off back-to-back road losses against UMass Lowell and Vermont, the two best teams in the conference by far. And they lost both games by double digits, but they also played – both scores were way – both games were way closer than the score indicates. I mean, they led Vermont by five points with like eight minutes left. They were two points behind Lowell with like four minutes left. And not only that, but in that latter game, they played Vermont in the game. The Catamounts clinched the regular season title. I mean, talk about a motivational spot. And now Binghamton comes back home in an obvious bounce back spot against a main Black Bears team, which while I love them this year, are just so mercurial. You never really know what you're going to get from Maine on a night-to-night basis. And I think what I figured out about Maine is two things. It needs its backcourt to play well, and it needs its forward GD, sorry, impossible to say this name, GD uh, Jewisopitis to go thermonuclear. And while the Maine's backcourt of Jaden Clayton and Kellen Tynes, it's really dynamic. Binghamton has probably the best backcourt in the America East between Jacob Falco and John McGriff. They also have a really solid interior defense, which is why I liked Binghamton at the beginning of the year. So, um, Maine's two main strengths are going to get neutralized by Binghamton's, you know, roster. And Binghamton, again, was able to cover against Vermont at Patrick Gymnasium. And finally, the motivational spot is so with Binghamton. Maine is in the America East Tournament. The only question now is if they'll get the seven seed or the eight seed. Meanwhile, Binghamton is in a three-way tie with Bryant and New Hampshire for the third seed in the America East Tournament. The seeding implications for this game and the next one are monumental for this team. 
Shot quality bets model makes the spread Binghamton minus seven and a half. Evan Maya makes it Binghamton wow. minus six. I love it at three and a half or better. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, it sounds like that's just pure line value, getting a good three points lower than uh, what the projected number would be by some of your sites that you trust. So um, I, I'll let you get to your other uh, low major play as well here as in the NEC. Uh, Merrimack and Long Island University Brooklyn have only combined for 17 total wins. Merrimack with 14 of those 17. Long Island got to be one of the worst teams in the country, coming in at three and 24. You're gonna go over the total ballparking about 130 here. Yeah, so I watched I watched the last matchup between Merrimack and LIU. It was a dead shot over from the jump, and it was an early game. It was played at 4 p.m. at at Lawler Arena in North Andover. In fact, three straight games between these two have flown over the total. And the reason is actually pretty simple. It's a really great on-court stylistic matchup. I, I doubt there's many people out there that watch Northeastern Conference or Warriors basketball, but the Warriors are known for a patented zone defense, a very aggressive zone defense that forces a lot of turnovers. And behind this zone, Merrimack is the best defense in the Northeastern Conference. And they pretty much just dominate opponents. I mean, the conference um, play efficiency numbers are not even close. And nobody in the country plays zone defense more than Merrimack, not even Syracuse. However, relatively speaking, LIU is a pretty good zone offense. They've been an above average zone offense in points per possession for two years straight. They scored just over 0.7 points per possession against the zone in the earlier meeting between these two, which is really low. But it's actually in line with the rest of the, what the rest of the league scores, which is way more than expected because LIU is the worst offense in the Northeast. They are horrific against anyone except the team that runs a zone defense where they're just average. Meanwhile, LIU is the worst defense in the Northeast, and it's not even close. They're a shell of a defensive team that can't stop a nosebleed. Merrimax Jordan Miner scored 25 in the last matchup. He should dominate again easily. And this whole thing is basically how these Merrimack-LIU games go. Merrimack scores it well. LIU scores more than their average performance and more than anyone expects against a dominant Merrimack defense. And these games fly over low numbers. I mean, this total is going to be set at 130 yeah. or lower. Three straight games have gone way over 130. Give it to me again. I will say this as a caveat. I am a little worried because neither team has anything to play for right now. Merrimack is going to yeah. be the seed the NEC tournament LIU's the bottom seed but at the minimum I think that just means the game's going to be played a little more free everyone just kind of all-star game scores uh, that's the only downside here but it's just the the matchup is perfect yeah no and I think to your point about what you mentioned in the beginning about how low major games can sometimes be harder to book you're mentioning how these games have the, the, the first one flew over the total and it was, it was an easy winner. So it sounds like uh, you, you think there could be some of that going on here where, it, it, you know, the, the total points in the game ends up landing more like 150, right? Yeah, well, that, this is one of the inefficiencies you can find, right, is that Merrimack yeah. defense is so dominant. It's been so dominant that all of their totals are set so low. But then you enter in a team like LIU that scores like 50 points a game because their offense is so terrible, and you realize that they can Rod Strickland's squad can score against the zone. And once you realize that, you easily realize that these two teams can flip over a super low number, especially because LIU doesn't—they don't even care to defend. They just lay up line against them. 
All right, I want to go back to one of the high major plays, and uh, I'll be honest, this is one that I don't like as much as some of my others, but I'm going to lay this short number. North Carolina minus two and the hook against Virginia because is North Carolina really going to go all season without winning a quad one game? Like it just, that might sound square, but I, I, it just, I I think there's a North Carolina final four from last year type game coming here. It seems like all season offensively, they have missed Brady Manick, uh, but Gosh, they have like everybody back. It's been so perplexing to me how they haven't been able to really ever put it together. Um, and yes, I, I'm sure you can argue bounce back for Virginia after a real ugly game against Boston College. Uh, I, I tend to think that if there's a time for North Carolina to be catching Virginia, uh, it would be on Saturday evening. So I lean with North Carolina. I also, again, I'm just. I talked about a lot how much I like the unranked favorite over the favorite system. Uh, you know, I, another thing I like is when you have a team kind of survive a look ahead spot. And I think North Carolina on Wednesday night was in just that. And I'm not trying to glamorize a 63 59 win against Notre Dame, but I, I think it, makes me feel better about the mental makeup of the team that they were able to pull that out. And now with the biggest game of the year in Chapel Hill, I'm going to go ahead and do it, but I know you kind of like Virginia here, right? Yeah, I'm leaning. I definitely am leaning Virginia, but I won't drag you. I will say, I'll say one thing, nice thing about this handicap. There are some serious questions surrounding Tony Bennett's rotation. Where the hell is Caden Shedrick? Sure. 130 offensive rating. He's played like 11 minutes per game over the last five games when Virginia has been flailing. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and question Tony Bennett, but there are some questions about what's going on there. I just, I, I, if I probably will stay away from this game, if I were going to bet it, I was going to bet Virginia just because uh, North Carolina, they, they're just bad. Armando Baker, he just looks like a shell of himself. But, I mean, they, yeah, they got to win a bet game eventually, right? So It's kind of what I'm banking on, and, and we'll yeah. see if it manifests itself. Um, let's stay in the state of North Carolina and make the short trip from Chapel Hill to Durham, where the Duke Blue Devils welcome in the Virginia Tech Hokies. Hokies are catching six, and you're on the road pooch here. Uh, why do you like Virginia Tech? Yeah, you should be able to, to get six or six and a half in the market. Um it's a pretty obvious buy low, sell high spot. Virginia Tech is off the loss to red hot Miami. Dukes won three straight against the dregs of the ACC in Notre Dame, Syracuse, and Louisville. No impressive wins there. Virginia Tech has also won three of the last four against Duke. I mean, Mike's, Mike Young's offense has just gotten anything it wants off of Duke recently. They went for almost 1.2 points per session in the past meeting this year dominating in spot-up and post-up opportunities. Over 1.4 points per possession in spot-up opportunities, over 1.6 points per possession in post-up opportunities. On the flip side, I don't really see Virginia Tech getting many stops. I think Filipowski will get whatever he wants on the interior. But I think that anything over two possessions is, is high for Duke, considering that Virginia Tech can— I was going to say, it doesn't feel like Duke wins with a lot of margin this year. 
Yeah, and you know, Virginia Tech is going to get anything offensively. And they are in a great bounce back spot. And they are still looking for big time wins. They're right on the bubble. I think it's a, uh, yeah, I, I just think that Duke minus six is way too many points. Speaking of the bubble, I want to go out west and uh, look at a big game in the Pac 12 in Salt Lake City where the Utah Utes are catching what appears to be two at home against the USC Trojans. And I, I watched a good deal of Utah and UCLA on Thursday night. And I came across pretty impressed with the battle of the Utes in the second half uh, after UCLA was up double digits at halftime. Utah made a game out of it and, and had a chance down the stretch to steal it. It would have been a huge quad one win for the Utes, looking like they're on the wrong side of the bubble. But uh, I think a little bit of a fishy line here, uh, given that it's essentially at pick. Uh, USC's, uh, I, I think, a lot of Andy Enfield and the job he's done there. Uh, got to an Elite Eight uh, a couple of years ago. And, I, you know, this is – I just think this is the Super Bowl for Utah. And the spot makes me like Utah at home, senior night. Uh, basically, I mean, we'll see what the Pac-12 tournament brings. But in a shallower power conference like the Pac-12, Utah needs this game. Uh, and as I said, I watched them on Thursday night rally against UCLA and make a game out of it and and really have a chance to win it. And, uh, you know, everybody talks about this time of year. Guards can kind of uh, carry you. And, you know, seemingly out of nowhere, Mike Saunders drops 25 for Utah in that game. So maybe there's some carryover there where you have a guy come off the bench and have a huge game uh, and you get some good, better performances from some of your starters. I like Utah catching the short number at home. I will say a couple things. Um, pretty obvious buy low, sell high spot. Uh, Utah off three straight wins. USC off three straight, or I'm sorry, Utah off three straight losses. USC off three straight wins. I'm also really in on Utah right now because I had them plus seven and a half in that game against oh. <laughs> Miracle cover. Thank you so much. I also hate USC. I I don't like anything about Andy Enfield's team this year. I've been off them from the jump. So, yeah. Oh, uh, you know, it, it's also nice whenever you get um, Utah at home. Utah has, I think, the second strongest home court advantage in the Pac-12. So always look that way when they're at home. Yeah, no, I, I think there's something to that. I mean, altitude maybe. Um, and I just feel like who wants to go to Utah? Like, I feel like opponents maybe are a little bit tapped out. You look at Ken Palm's, um, home court advantage. They're literally, it's the 10th highest elevation and the 26th highest overall home court advantage. That should be the second in the Pac-12 behind Colorado. All right, let's stay out West. Uh, interesting line here. You're looking at Loyola Marymount, who's been, uh, not a bad team this year in the in the West Coast Conference. I believe they were the team that won at Gonzaga, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And they are only laying, is this right, one and a half against Pepperdine, who's the la- last team in the league? What's going on here? So, unfortunately, since um, I sent that to you, the line has moved to two and a half. Okay. However, 
I still absolutely love it. You're right. Loyola, sorry, Loyola Marymount is the first team to beat both St. Mary's and Gonzaga in a season in almost a decade. I believe um, BYU did it back in 2014. Now, cap for this game is pretty simple. The Lions win and they get the fourth seed in the WCC tournament. They could fall to the five seed with a loss and a San Francisco win. And they're at league bottom here. Pepperdine. I mean, this game should be a breeze. Loyola Marymount has won three straight against Pepperdine, all by two possessions or more. And Cameron Shelton is unbelievable. He is going ballistic at the moment. He just dropped 40 in a game against Pacific. He had 36 against Santa Clara. And recently he had 31 against the St. Mary's defense, top five defense in the nation, in an upset win. He's a man on a mission. I think he wins this game alone I, as a short road favorite at Pepperdine. Impossible for me not to lay this. Yeah, no, I, I think that's well said about getting a bye in the conference tournament. And, you know, Pepperdine has been a little stingier of late, but still only one and a half. What you have to give up or two and a half now on LMU. I might tell that that's definitely a good look. Let's, let me wrap up in the Big Ten uh, where – I, a really fun rivalry game uh, takes place in West Lafayette where the Indiana Hoosiers travel to Purdue. Indiana catching seven in the hook here, and that's where I'm looking. I, I'll take the road dog here. Yeah, you could certainly argue revenge opportunity for Purdue, having lost to Indiana earlier in the season uh, back in the beginning of February. Uh, but I just think that maybe it's being a little overaccounted for. And if you think about it, like, when these two teams met up in the beginning of February, Zach Eady outplayed Trace Jackson Davis, and Indiana still won. So I'm not sure how inferior Indiana is to Purdue. And this also speaks to something that we've talked about throughout the pod here is the fact that there's just not that much separation between teams in the top five and teams, say, ranked 15 through 25, like closer towards the end of the top 25. And so in a rivalry game like that, I think that angle maybe gets amplified a little bit as well. Like I always like taking a lot of points in rivalry games because I just like I'm on Richmond tonight in the A-10. Like I tend to think Richmond against BCU in that game. Like it, it just tends to you get the dogs to get up for the game to begin with. And obviously, if you're Indiana, you know, why wouldn't you get up for this game coming off of a game in which we talked about that game in East Lansing where it was going to be a tough spot for anybody to go in there. But Indiana. Still didn't play that well in that game. Uh, and also, if you're the Hoosiers, you know, you're neck and neck with Maryland for and Illinois for the three spot in the conference tournament. Still have a chance to get to two, only a game behind Northwestern in the conference standing. So I, I think it's too many points. Uh, again, I think maybe to an extent the uh, revenge angle for Purdue being a little overaccounted for. You also look at some of Purdue's recent challenges against upper echelon teams in the Big Ten. It hasn't gone as well. Ohio State's having a down year, so I kind of throw that game out. They lose by 14 in an atrocious second half in College Park against Maryland. Lose on the road against Northwestern. And again, all these games are on the road. They did handle Iowa at home by double digits um, and beat up on Penn State earlier in the month at home. But I just think these teams are closer than seven and a half, regardless of where you play. So all in the Hoosiers. Yeah, I actually have a couple of thoughts on this game. First of all, I'm also on Richmond tonight. They're up four with 12 minutes left in the first half, just so you know. Um, secondly, it, this gets into something that I've, I've been trying to talk about more generally. I, I hate Purdue. 
the scout on them is well documented. You contain ED on defense, you make the EDs beat you. On offense, you dribble drive and you get ED defending out in space. Jalen Hood-Shafino's development as a pick-and-roll guard has been surreal. And I think that his pick-and-roll ability, he's going to carve up the Boilermakers in the middle part of the floor, which is exactly what he did back in Bloomington a few weeks ago. Mm. It's it's a really good matchup there when you have JHS playing the way he is. I also can't wait to bet um, that Big 12, like eight or nine seed that catches one seed Purdue in the second round. <laughs> I'm going to take that against the spread money line. Give you the biggest bet of my life. All right, let's uh, wrap things up. I know uh, you have a few more games that you wanted to touch on. Um, and let's start actually uh, with another one of the uh, low major games that you're looking at as um, I believe this is the uh, – it's either the NEC or America East. Help me out a little bit on uh, New Hampshire. A- a- America East. Um, catching 10 at UMass Lowell. What do you like about this one? Um, UMass Lowell has nothing to play for in the America East. They are locked into the second seed for the America East tournament no matter what. As mentioned with Binghamton, um, New Hampshire is tied with Binghamton and Bryant for the third seed in the tournament. So every single game matters these last two. There are also two other reasons for optimism here. UMass Lowell is overvalued in general. They've had some fortunate shooting luck during this great run. And New Hampshire is going to have the best player on the floor. Clarence Daniels should be conference player of the year. He's a dynamic power forward wing hybrid, three-level scoring ability, crashes the boards really hard. It is worth mentioning um, really quick that um, the main markets for this game have not opened. I am expecting this game to open around 10. Now, with um, certain motivational aspects, this could open a lot shorter. I'd probably mm-hmm. play plus seven or half. I'd probably play New Hampshire plus seven and a half or better at UMass Lowell. All right, let's wrap up in the SEC where I'm intrigued to see what you, first off, have made of the entire season for Arkansas. I feel like the Hogs have been one of the more disappointing teams in the country, given all the recruiting buzz that was, uh, you know, filtering in uh, in the spring and, you know, McDonald's All-American after McDonald's All-American committing to Eric Musselman. Um, and, and, and so this is interesting because, you know, it's still a decent season, you know, by power five standards. When you look at the fact that Arkansas is still 19 and nine overall. Um, but obviously not where people thought they'd be in the SEC. And they're going to Tuscaloosa, and obviously it's well-documented the uh, you know noise that's been going on with that program and with Alabama and what they've had to deal with this week. And I was kicking myself for not taking South Carolina the other night. I took a 41-point game from Brandon Miller just for the tie to get in and out with a victory. Uh, so I'm curious, why do you like Arkansas here? And, and just generally on Arkansas season, why do you think they're – a little further down in the SEC than expected. Um, starting with the game itself, I mean, with everything going on with Alabama and the fact that they just couldn't stop South Carolina at all. I also took South Carolina in this game, but South Carolina got anything it wanted to. And now all of a sudden, Alabama's laying 10 points again, like nothing happened. On a second hand, on the Arkansas side, Nick, Nick Smith is back. He's been playing all right lately. And... Arkansas is further down in the SEC 
because Eric Musselman, he does this on a game-to-game basis, but also on a season basis. He starts slow, and then he cranks it up. The last, It feels like the last three sure. years Arkansas has gone on their classic Arkansas run, right? Down the stretch, win a bunch of games, win a few games. <laughs> tournament they do this every year well listen to this they started one and five in sec play since then they're seven and three they got three games left they got alabama tennessee kentucky then they got the sec tournament and then they got the ncaa tournament and they're healthy with nick Smith jr and they're getting an alabama team in crisis mode i something feels wrong about this line because alabama opened at like a seven and a half point favorite and got steamed up but I just I can't help but to bet a Nick Smith Jr. led Arkansas team against this Alabama team right now. And honestly, I'll probably bet Arkansas against Tennessee next week as well. All right, good stuff. There he is, Tanner McGrath from the Action Network, kind enough to join us here on a Friday evening edition of Full Slate. Hope you're able to get this pod either before you hit the sack for a Friday evening or certainly in the morning on Saturday as Games are uh, obviously getting going at 12 noon Eastern time on Saturday. It'll be a very busy day on the college hardwood. Tanner had a lot of fun. Any final words? No. Uh, good luck tomorrow, everyone. It's one of the biggest slates of the year. <laughs> the next two Saturdays are going to be wild. So good luck. <laughs> there we go. He Again, he's Tanner McGrath. Thanks to him for joining us on this edition of Full Slate. Give the podcast a follow at full underscore slate underscore pod. Uh, and uh, Tanner, where can we find your work? Obviously at the yeah. Action Network. Yeah, I work um, I work at the Action Network. I also do work for the Chicago Tribune and the Boston Globe. You can find me at, at Tanner's Truth on Twitter. There we go. He's Tanner McGrath. I'm Greg Frank. Everyone, enjoy the Saturday on the College Hardwood. This has been another edition of Full Slate. Thanks to all for tuning in. And, of course, please play responsibly. <laughs>